Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We review the Italian Grand Prix and ask if Charles Leclerc went too far in defence. Charles Leclerc takes a famous win in front of the Tafosi. Sebastian Vettel blunders again. Saturday produces carry-on qualifying and driving standards are again in the spotlight. Boring, boring Formula One, anyone? I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to discuss a thrilling Italian Grand Prix. First is Andrew van der Berg, long time no see in autosport podcast terms. I'm just pleased you managed to get your way out of the Monte Car Park. Well, it was no mean feat. Uh, I spent half an hour going out literally nowhere. I was on the ring road, Lynn, but uh, eventually I made it back. And yeah, I can't remember the last time I was on one of these. Um, probably talking about Formula E from some uh, godforsaken hotel room in the middle of nowhere. But uh, yeah, pleased to be back. Yeah, well, we are very pleased to have you and your your insight after your weekend at Monza. Also joined by Scott Mitchell. Have you learned what floor of the hotel you're staying in yet? I have known what, what floor I've stayed on in this hotel a good percentage of the time. 
It's only one one minor blip in my memory. Was this the one when you pilloried me for getting off on the wrong floor? And it turned out I'd got off on the wrong yeah, floor. Yeah, I was on the completely the right place. Yeah, it was. I was. It was my mistake. Um, but you are not without. You're not beyond reproach this week, Ed Shaw, in terms find, of I memory. Think, I think you'll find I am. What about? What, why don't you tell our good listeners about your uh, car key shunt? I merely, as we walked into the approach the media centre on, I can't remember what day it was. Friday, Friday. Friday do we think? I merely reported that I perhaps left the key at the car and was going to go back. And then I just started to walk the other way. And then from around the corner, you heard me say to myself, oh, no, they're in my pocket. Well, we can actually it- utilise the fact that we're using microphones on the podcast to simulate exactly what happened. Because what it was, there was up close, Ed Straw was very much just like, hang on, oh, no, feeling his pockets. Oh, no, I, I think I've left the car, the car key in the car. I'll just go back and get it. They're in my pocket. <laughs> well, it's the law, isn't it? The, the law is that no matter how many times you check your pocket when you've lost something like that, you will find it in one of your pockets on like the 17th. So so I, I, the correct protocol is to keep searching as I walk back. So well, I, it, I think that was a win. It did lead us to speculate about the size of your pockets, though, Ed, compared to, say, like a normal size pocket and how there might be a considerable more area that it could have been found in. Well, it is true that some of my clothes are larger than average, and I've... I've Always meant to do a bit of a study of the relative size of pockets, whether they go up in proportion. Interesting question, one for uh, one for another day. Uh, well, let's talk about the race, shall we? Because it was a very, very good one. It was a it was old school Formula One. This wasn't it. It was Lewis Hamilton spending a big chunk of the race chasing down, well, not chasing down, but pressuring uh, Charles Leclerc, who obviously went on to win. Now, I, I checked at the end of the race. There were basically the first 41 laps of the race until Hamilton made his mistake at the start of lap 42. Of that, ignoring the two two laps on which the pit stops were made, the average gap over the line this was was 0.951. So you had Hamilton within a second. And often that gap was slightly exaggerated at the start-finish line. So he was basically, on average, within a second of Leclerc for 41 laps of that race. Brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah, this Grand Prix was much more interesting than uh, car parks and, and pocket sizes, wasn't it? The, to, be within, to be within a second, on average, so over those 40-odd laps, Lewis was in DRS range every lap basically. So it says two things to me. One, how damn impressive that Ferrari is in a straight line. And two, how well Leclerc drove that at Monza of all places, a driver can be in DRS range on average every single lap of the Grand Prix and yet not be able to make a pass stick. Yeah, but there were opportunities, weren't there? We'll have to um, have to talk about these. Uh, there were two kind of moments, I guess, where where things really took off. And the first stint, Hamilton was not quite as close. He was keeping a sort of... It wasn't the usual two-second distance. He was always within, I think, about a second and a half at the maximum. But it was never more than 1.471, I see, from the the draft of my race analysis, in fact. So he was pressuring him. And then we had the stops. They stopped Hamilton. Leclerc stopped the next lap. The overcut, uh, the undercut wasn't quite powerful enough. So Leclerc was able to stay ahead, but you had Leclerc on the hards. Interestingly, that was a surprise. People, people weren't Pirelli, said they didn't expect anyone to go on the hards, but Vettel had put them on. Talk about why he was at the back uh, later, but he'd put them on, was getting good lap time. So they, they put Leclerc on the, on the hards. So Leclerc came out of the pits ahead of Hamilton. And then uh, a few laps later, I think it was lap 23, we had the, uh, the the moment that the the first attempted pass made when uh, we saw Leclerc pass Hulkenberg into the parabolica, slightly compromised his exit exit and let Bottas uh, let Bottas I'm getting ahead of myself let Hamilton have a run into the first corner and and what did you make of what what followed Andrew? 
Well, I think it was. You're absolutely right about that uh, move on Hulk into uh, into Parabolica, and just going back to your earlier point about how close it was. I think it was the way in which Kett constantly managed to hit his line through Parabolica that really prevented uh, uh, that crucial overtaking maneuver from happening. But the chain of events that you're talking about, where into the second chicane, uh, Hamilton found himself almost able to to put himself into an overtaking position and we saw you know Leclerc test the racing room uh law to the millimeter of its application and ultimately forcing Hamilton to take to the escape road to to avoid contact I mean I, I like the let them race uh, philosophy and I think that probably took it about as as far as we could and obviously there are various calls from Hamilton and uh, about consistency or whatever but I think you can't apply the consistency of what happened a year ago against this as he was trying to do in the post-race press conference you have to apply the post-Austria consistency and it was consistent to where the new interpretations of the rules are was it consistent to what happened in Canada for example probably not but I think you know we've got to move on from that and I prefer a Formula One where that's the way in which you're allowed to defend and you know apart from a couple of small errors it was what Leclerc deserved to be able to to maintain that position and hold on for the win well of course the the rule that Hamilton objected to and he objected to it over the radio immediately was the one that says if you move over and then you move back towards the line you have to leave a car's width and I think he clearly didn't and that's why he got the black and white flag I'm calling it. it's not literally a flag anymore that that's just a a warning on the on the warning system but uh yeah that that was the thing that that made Hamilton all right and Toto Wolff was complaining about it saying it set a dangerous precedent uh, uh after the race I don't know if it's a if it's that problematic a, a precedent. My, my issue with it is that I, I sort of see what Hamilton said, was saying after the race, where he said that y- if you're going to get a black and white warning for that, then that might be all you need over the course of a Grand Prix to to, to win. And well, that was what Wolf was was concerned about yeah. the fact you get you get one exactly. So you get a free pass basically. It's the M- Michael Mazzi, the race director, has compared it to a yellow card in in, in football. And yeah, maybe that's uh, maybe that is okay. I think it is definitely in line with what we've seen since Austria, and I am definitely all for F1 and the FIA working towards a, a, a format of racing where you can actually push each other that hard. My, I, I'm I'm slightly concerned more about the the, the second move, which I guess we will get into uh, in a bit. But on, on on this instance, yeah, Hamilton was immediately furious about not being given that space on the outside what i find really interesting is what he said after the race which was had he not been in title contention let's imagine the championships wrapped up hamilton says that basically he wouldn't have moved he'd have let leclerc come into him and they'd have collided and then who knows what would have happened because it would have it would potentially have been a bit more than than what we saw and then obviously the consequences are different so is it judged differently but uh, I, maybe Hamilton sort of over-egging it a little bit there. What it was good to see was Leclerc learn from the the from getting mugged by Max Verstappen uh, in Austria and losing the victory there. He said he was going to get more aggressive after that. We saw it straight away at the British Grand Prix, and now we've seen it for the first time win him a race because he said afterwards that it was only by learning from his defeat to Verstappen in Austria he believes that that played a really cr- crucial part in him being willing to get his elbows out against uh, Hamilton. 
Yeah, very much so. He, he set out his stall to be uh, uh, to be quite aggressive in, in defence, shall we say? And that uh, that was one of the two two moments where that helped helped win the race. And we should know the, the the kind of key moment in the build up to that, obviously, because Leclerc defended the first corner, got a bit of a wheel spin when he's coming off it. There's a point when they're going around Curva Grande and the, the fast right handed flat out, where Hamilton's kind of closing on him, and and, and Hamilton actually just slightly lifts. Just, just so he can check his momentum and then go kind of to the right of Leclerc, which is quite a uh, a neat little. It just shows Hamilton's racing brain. A lot of drivers have just kept their foot in and uh, maybe uh, caused some problems, but he uh, put himself in the in the right place place there. But yeah, this then obviously didn't really change anything. We still had Hamilton chasing Leclerc. This fantastic uh, battle going on, and then we had uh, the next uh, moments uh, a few laps uh, later. What lap were we on? Obviously. Bottas had pitted out the lead after running long by uh, by this stage. Yeah, we saw on lap 36, Leclerc had a lock-up. Little lock-up into the chicane, cut the chicane, again got a heap of wheel spin trying to get the power back on, and then Hamilton's got a run again. Now, you said you were concerned about this one, Scott, so perhaps you can talk us through it. Yeah, so on this occasion, um, Hamilton doesn't check uh, on his acceleration through Curva Grande, he doesn't move to the right. He he goes to the left because there's a bit of a gap there. And whether or not he does it too late, I guess is open to interpretation. But Leclerc does make a movement to the left as Hamilton is approaching, and that to me, if there's a if there's a place at Monza where you don't move late on someone, Curva Grande is definitely one of them. It's not quite the same as moving in the braking zone. I completely appreciate that. But the whole point of that black and white warning system is that you get one, you get one book in, one yellow card for one foul, and it doesn't matter if you do the same foul again. If you do a foul worthy of a yellow card, you get a second yellow. That's how football works. That's how every, any other sport that utilises a similar system works. So my question mark is whether what Leclerc did through Curva Grande was legitimate. I'm a, I genuinely don't know where I stand on it because part of me kind of thinks he might have moved just just early enough for it to be legitimate and on the limit but not over the limit Hamilton described it as dangerous and I certainly see the point because a split second either side and they might be making contact and and Hamilton's flying across the gravel there's some dangerous driving going on that's what he said over the radio straight after I mean I would be much more comfortable with him getting the black and white for that move than the first one um, I have a long-standing beef with that sort of behaviour on the racetrack. As an old bugger, you know, watching racing in the 80s, you would just never have seen uh, that sort of moving around. It's a, I mean, it's probably more than a decade in now, but the, that that sort of racecraft was 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 deemed ungentlemanly and dirty driving then, and somehow it just it just became uh, par for the course. I. I I don't, I don't, I don't like to see that. I think, and if, it, and we don't really need it now. We've had a great Grand Prix, but if if there are complaints about there being a lack of overtaking in Formula One, it's because of moves like that. You know, if you're allowed to get away with that behaviour, then the ability to get a toe and to outbreak someone becomes much, much, much harder. So, I, I'm, I would be much more comfortable with that being given a penalty rather than the previous move, which I think is fair defence, whereas that's probably as the Hamilton said, dirty. Yeah, I mean, the first one you can say, I mean, I think it did, 
it did infringe the, the cross cross over the line of the rules, saying you need to have the the car width. But there was also a bit of well, you're on the outside. His front Lewis's Lewis Hamilton's front axle was almost level with Leclerc's, but he wasn't in a great position to pull that move off around the outside. It certainly wasn't in the position he was against Vettel when he made that move last year. So yeah, you can allow that. And then, but but the the, the problem about the the safety of those accidents, high speed in Curva Grande, we do sometimes see cars launched from that sort of thing. There's one off the top of my head. There was a World Series race many years ago in uh, Catalonia where Marco Bolognomi got launched. I can't remember who was defending. Was it Mikhail Alishin? Might have been. Uh, but that was that was a late that was a late move on a straight car in the air. And, and there are other examples. And that's that's the that's the safety concern. What I would point out as well about the the first incident, um, the precedent that was set in Austria was very much that the driver on the outside has a responsibility to avoid an accident as well. That that was when Leclerc got mugged by Verstappen and was deemed that well, you know, you turned in, you didn't initiate the wheel to wheel contact as well. So that's, while, the, while, that's also the live by the sword, die by the sword principle. Yes, I like a, to call absolutely. it absolutely. And while Hamilton doesn't turn into the apex or anything and just be like, it's not like he turns when he's alongside Leclerc and then acts like, well, what's he doing? Because I've been doing everything right here. Lewis will probably rightly argue that he's in a straight line going down there. But as you say, live by the sword, die by the sword. You put yourself out on the outside for a corner where he's not making that pass in a million years, I don't think. I, I can't remember the last time I saw two genuinely evenly matched cars you can make that move stick if you've got a much faster car than the guy you're overtaking but that's not a legitimate overtake so that's where it's a little bit 50-50 so I guess on the balance of it and I'm sort of convincing myself as I speak here you know how you hear it in football and sometimes we hear like something you know, you've seen them given I've seen either of those two given in terms of the at the, at the chicane and at Curva Grande and maybe on this occasion I've crossed the two, it doesn't quite add up to a penalty. And ultimately, you get really good hard racing that Leclerc was obviously very happy with. And actually, Hamilton even said afterwards, he doesn't have really an issue with the racing. He just wants to know, right, what is and isn't allowed because then I'm going to go out and do it. And I think the difference here is that Leclerc's had a couple of races now, Austria and Silverstone, where he has been subject to that new precedent. He has raced under those new rules. And Hamilton hasn't really. I think this was Hamilton's first taste of the FIA's new position on it. And I think we might actually see... I mean, yes, he's racing for the title now. So we're not going to see like an out-and-out massively aggressive Hamilton. But maybe we're just going to see Hamilton add another little trick to his... his, As if he doesn't have enough enough strings to his bow. But I reckon this is going to be... He's such an intelligent driver, as well as being rapid. I think he's going to learn from this. And this is only going to make Hamilton better. Yeah, I'll certainly have noticed it. Particularly if there's a situation when he's not fighting for a championship uh, again, although the last time he wasn't fighting for a championship except at the right at the end of the season, having already won it, was 2013. So, uh, yeah, we, we've, nobody can remember what uh, a Lewis Hamilton not in championship contention having won it actually drives like. But, uh, yeah, uh, for me, I think what we saw from Leclerc was it was ruthless. I think it was it was aggressive. There were There was an element of danger involved in it. But also, he's leading a Grand Prix in a slower car in race conditions admittedly that has some strengths in the right places to make it hard you know it's he's only won one Grand Prix before home crowd under pressure from one of the greatest Grand Prix drivers of all time so of course he's not going to make it easy he's got to be quite ruthless and and go not all the way to extremes but go a little bit uh, extreme shall we say to do it and I think there's a difference between 
putting the, op- the your opponent in a position where they can get out of it or putting them in a position where they can't. Because basically, like the, the, the first incident going into the second chicane, it's like basically saying, well, you're just going to have to back off and go across or, or, or we'll have a collision. But it wasn't kind of a swipe and it's kind of, it's kind of you're, you're, you're in the wall. It was the best wheel-to-wheel conduct from a Ferrari driver in battle with Lewis Hamilton than I can remember for some time. <laughs> Well, we might get on to uh, something related to that uh, t- topic fairly uh, fairly shortly. But yeah, it, it was great driving from Leclerc. Yes, he did make that mistake and lock up and go across the chicane that put him in that position the second time. The first time, there wasn't much he could do because he did have to go past Hulkenberg. Obviously, run, the Renaults had run long, so that was a, mo- a pass for position, so he had to do it. But we should also say, Hamilton did also make uh, make a similar mistake when he, uh, a few laps later, took himself out of victory contention. Obviously, he'd, he'd worked his tyres hard. He had his little lock-up and then straight-lined the, the chicane properly, went through the, the little slalom marker boards, and that let Bottas pass into uh, second place. Yeah, I think it's a testimony to the fact that um, how hard the... the guys at the front were pushing uh, you know that both of them and actually Bottas himself I'm sure we'll, we'll get around to talking about him all of them made little errors that could have either been costly or at least prevented them um, from uh, affecting the move uh, it, you don't see too many errors from Hamilton but that one certainly uh, did cost him cost him at least second place and uh, you know potentially that win because he was put in a pretty hefty amount of pressure on. I was slightly surprised that Mercedes didn't pit him immediately after that. I know they didn't have a new pair of, um, a new set of softs to to put him onto, but I thought there was no threat from behind. He was, he was guaranteed third. Why why not roll the dice with, you know, with a new set of tyres with Ferrari being on the hards? I th- maybe they could have, you know, at least given him a headache strategically. Um, but they chose not to, and... Uh, I, I mean, the the title's mathematically over, isn't it? I mean, Hamilton has, has got this one in the bag. So maybe, as to your point, Scott, he, he he can fight like he's not fighting for the title, given that he's got such an enormous buffer. He doesn't really need to think about, you know, uh, driving strategically like that. But maybe giving you a, a nice segue here, Ed, I think uh, the fact that Leclerc has doubled up on his win so soon after the first one and with Vettel's mistake... I think this was a, a really significant race and what this means is his status, what it means for Ferrari, what it what it means for him as a driver in the championship from now on. And I think this is will be looked at as a quite a defining moment in the, in the sort of short-term history of what we see at the front of Formula One. So, um, And to see that sort of an amazing reception that he got, the first Ferrari driver to win here. And I think it's nine years, but it feels like a lot longer. Um was uh was was really good to to be a part of you know it's a, it's one of the best podiums in any form of sport I think and you know the reaction that he got from the crowd this this is somebody who's going to be uh one of them and in their hearts for a long time to come yeah it's it, you can't you can't get away from the significance the Spa win was important and it was a breakthrough win and he was the first to win that season we talked on this podcast after that about whether it meant Leclerc was the number one but then what we've had here we've had Leclerc winning in front of the Tafosi. If you win the, the the Italian Grand Prix for Ferrari, they love you forever, don't they? No matter what else what else happens, and 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 how Vettel will have desperately wanted in this weekend to go into it and be the guy to do that because that could have just changed everything for him. That's what he'll have been telling himself that it would have just transformed everything. The year of terrible mistakes would have been behind him, but yeah, Leclerc managed to win under pressure, a, a difficult victory to to execute, and then we saw, of course, Vettel 
he was a little bit unfortunate. We'll, we'll get into the detail in qualifying later on of why the second runs were a, a hilarious farce. But basically, that meant that Vettel's qualifying time, which put him fourth, he was at the front of the, the pack for the for the, the first runs. And he was going to be not at the front of the pack. He'd have been behind Leclerc for the second one. So actually, Vettel really fancied his chance of nicking pole because actually Leclerc's first run time hadn't... It wasn't a brilliant... Uh, pole lap as it turned out to be so Vettel already going into the race was thinking oh that's a bit unfortunate he wanted to make it grand I actually thought because on the first lap Hulkenberg did a did a Hamilton 2018 to him and Vettel very conspicuously did not make the same mistake and allowed contact to happen he said after the race well I wasn't in a hurry so I didn't mind him going he dispatched him next so I I sort of thought well that's good he's in a good he's in a good good space there and then of course the mistake on lap six at Ascari Scott just describe it and uh, try and understand exactly how this happened. Well, my description of it is a four-letter word that I can't probably say on this podcast. Uh, I try and think of a more eloquent way of putting it. Spin. Yes, it was. It began with S. <laughs> um, he just—I don't know if he took too much curb but in on the entry to Ascari compared to the previous laps, but he hits the curb. Rear comes round and he loses it, and you're just like, okay, well, that's up there it's on a par isn't it with every rubbish mistake he's made over the last 15 months in grand prix racing i make that what? So that's eight significant mistakes in the last 24 yeah go, going going back to germany last year yeah basically. so which is crazy is it keeps up his one in three record doesn't it of uh, throwing away points um but then i just it's what he did next was inexplicable it was dangerous and it was unforgivable we because having and i and i think this is a bit of a trait of vettel i think when he loses it in those situations i think he loses his head briefly and he panics and he tries to get going everyone wants to get going as quickly as possible but i think he just has this little second where he doesn't think about if he can go and here unlike previous times where he checks himself after that initial oh god get back on the throttle and go he he normally checks himself and he didn't hear so he then comes back across the track just rejoins the track while people are flying through Ascari. Not exactly the slowest chicane at, at, at Monza, quite the opposite. And as Lance Stroll's coming round, he they, they make make contact pitches, Stroll into a spin. And so lucky that that wasn't anything worse because we, we were talking when it happened. And as you rightly said, Ed, that move, what, what Vettel did by rejoining in that manner, that's dangerous at the uh, any situation that is not what you want to see at any time one week after we've had a fatal accident at spa because a stationary or near as makes no difference car is in on the racing line and struck by a missile basically just i know i know that that's almost certainly not in their mind when that happens and that the, the it's not, vettel's not wrong for going off and then going oh i've uh, this happened last week better be extra careful but just in the context of what's going on, it's the last thing anyone needed to see. And I just think it was absolutely right that the stewards took the harshest possible action they could with him, short of a disqualification from the race, You know, which I'm sure a couple of people probably think that he deserved. But I, I, I think they were right to throw almost 
every pretty much everything except the kitchen sink at him and and rightly so i thought it was really stupid well they gave vettel the the harshest in race penalty they could which is the uh the stop go penalty a 10 second stop go penalty so he had to make a separate visit to the pits sit there for 10 seconds then then carry carry on so that's anything beyond that is a more serious that that you do have to disqualify someone or something for that so the stewards looks on it very very uh very very dimly but i think talking about vettel it it just it just seems like the whole Ferrari dreams over, really, doesn't it? That's what it feels like to me. I think I'm I've I've got a lot of time for that. I was hugely impressed. I covered all of his four world championships, did some amazing things, and I still he's he's still not that old. He should have life in him. For whatever reason, the Ferrari thing just isn't working, and the environment has over the past seven days will have swung even more against him. With Leclerc being the the guy, seven times Leclerc's outqualified him consecutively now although Germany wasn't a, a fair fight but I'm sure he probably would have been ahead of him there in the normal fight anyway so every single box in the who is the lead driver in this team is ticked by Leclerc the only one that isn't is is history but just because you were winning your fourth world championship in 2013 doesn't mean you're Ferrari's lead driver in 2019. No absolutely uh, of course he also picked up three penalty points uh, as well as his uh, in-race penalty. And that means he's only one of those away from a potential race ban. And part of me wonders whether that's actually what he needs, you know, a little bit of time out of the cockpit, certainly a change of scenery. He, uh, he may have been out qualified seven times, but there's still been enough to suggest the pace is still there. But there's the other bits around it just aren't, you know, the consistency in the races and all of those other bits of application um, just seem to seem to have left him and whether he needs to change the scenery whether he needs to take a sabbatical or a year out or do something to rediscover his mojo he's what is he 32 33 so conceivably he could have another five years but um you would it would appear that his time as a team leader is is over now because there are no obvious places to go uh certainly in a front running team where we could do that i guess there are how many races there left this season six Oh, loads. I can't yeah, remember There's now. probably about 20. Well, we, have 14, you know, we have so many now. Six, seven. Seven. So seven there's, races. Se- there's seven races left, which he's not actually very far behind uh, Leclerc in the points. So he could, you know, if he gets his act together, string a series of results together and end up the season as, as the number one. But it it looks like an astonishingly big ask now. Traditionally, Singapore coming up next is a track he's been incredibly strong at. But it's not one that's going to favour that car. So they'll probably be, you know, fighting over fourth, fifth, sixth place there. It, it Everything is pointing in the wrong direction for him now. And I think, you know, yeah, he probably he probably needs to regroup him and and find a different place to get his act together or whatever. You know, he traditionally does do things quite young. So that's always been a hallmark of his career. And I wouldn't be. I, I sort of thought he'd retire at the end of next year, but it's it's looking harder and harder for next year now. Is he, he's almost going to be the de facto number two? Yeah, I think it, it could end up going going that way. But yeah, the, the environment's clearly not working for him. So so Wolf after race, I don't underestimate a driver like this. And so like, well, how? How many sort of times do you and I, I do rate Vettel and I've sort of thought, well, he can get out of this malaise, then it do it. But there's a point where just a temporary dip becomes just your level and, and a dip and it's obvious that that environment he's just not able to deliver what he could do. We should also say that Leclerc has improved as well. So Leclerc wasn't that happy with himself over the first seven or so races. He's he's worked away at it, improved things. Now he's emerged as a as a race winner. So Although you can say, well, the first part of the season, you could argue Vettel was looking like this more senior hand just on the fact he wasn't making the, 
making quite so many mistakes. Now he is making mistakes. He's generally being slower. You know, what, what, if you're running Ferrari, you're not sitting there thinking Vettel's the guy that's going to win the world championship. I know, especially when you've got a guy like Leclerc, who one thing that I think has gone a little bit under the radar in all of this, back-to-back wins in F1, no mean feat in any case, but it's the first time a Ferrari driver's done that since Vettel won the first two races of the last season. And I was having a little bit of a look through, and I'm pretty sure it's the it's only the second time it's happened since Alonso in 2010. That shows just how inconsistent Ferrari's been, and just sort of they've just not even when so even when Vettel was at, at, at his peak, obviously Ferrari was still playing catch up at Mercedes. But it shows that with the car they had last year and to, in 2017 to a to a degree. Vettel's never really strung this together properly. And Leclerc, not only has he now got that first win out of the way, two wins in a row, he's won the Italian Grand Prix at the first time of asking as a Ferrari driver in immensely difficult circumstances with one hand tied behind his back and Vettel tied it for him by removing himself and, as Leclerc put it, allowing Mercedes to play a bit of a strategic game at the front by just leaving Bottas out for a few more laps and trying to sort of pincer Leclerc and Ferrari almost. Whereas Vettel, sort of going the other way, isn't it? When Ferrari has been at its strongest and capable of winning, Vettel slumped off the podium in Belgium and he ruined his race pretty much as soon as it started here. So it's just it's just going away from Vettel. And we sort of talked about this briefly, didn't we, Ed, on the, on the way out. Got a lot of respect for Vettel, really like him off track, really like him as a person, have the respect for him that a four-time world champion deserves, but... The way he is at the moment, as a racing driver, he is a four-time world champion in history books alone. The way he carries himself on track, the way he is commanding that leadership within the team, it has changed what he's doing in terms of mistakes in battle and stuff. Leclerc is, as you said, he's the the man at the moment. And the way you put it was absolutely spot on. What Vettel achieved back in 2013 is largely irrelevant in terms of the pecking order in Ferrari in in, in late 2019. Yeah, very, very much so. Uh, we should lean back towards the race a little bit, because you mentioned uh, the second drivers. Obviously, Bottas did then come into the equation in the race. He had a seven-lap offset against Leclerc in terms of the tyres. He was obviously on the mediums. Leclerc's still on the on the hard. So he, he made his stop, and he was catching that lead battle at just over half a second a lap after his stop. So he was already motoring up. He wasn't far behind Hamilton at the point Hamilton went off. But Hamilton then got out of the way. And in fact, Hamilton did say after the race, uh, uh, you were there, Scott, when he, he said that he was probably going to have to let Bottas pass to have a go anyway because his tyres were, were, were pretty much shot. But Bottas then found himself there, and it, he had a clear run. He had that momentum, the closing speed. He had the tyre offset. The thing that disappointed me about Bottas is not that he didn't pass Leclerc because Hamilton showed that was very, very difficult. I will not criticise him for not doing that, but it's the fact he didn't, he wasn't able to do what Hamilton could do and just constantly sit there. He did have one chance, which is quite a nice chance, when they were coming to lap, I think, Lando Norris and Vettel, um, but Vettel, Leclerc obviously lost a little bit of momentum there and Bottas gained on him down towards turn one and then Bottas wasn't trying to make a move, but he went too deep into turn one, lost a second, and that kind of broke the back of the challenge. So Bottas just could not... He was quick, certainly quick, and at times in the race he was certainly the quickest of the front runners, but 
he, he wasn't able to do what Hamilton had done. Well, there's no point in Bottas having this ability to stealth his way into contention for a win if he's never able to force the issue when, when he gets there. And I turn the tables a little bit and ask you a question, Ed, which is highly unorthodox for this podcast. I'm going to turn into the the the, the, the interviewer at this stage and, and, and Andy can answer this as well. I asked Bottas after the race if he felt that the fact that Hamilton spent 20-plus laps chasing Leclerc and get, couldn't get a pass in basically showed that it was a Mercedes-Ferrari thing rather than Bottas's inherent inability to force the issue when he's there. Too generous towards Bottas? Or do you think that he was genuinely hamstrung by the the the, the ways in which Ferrari and Mercedes had their pace today? Well, I think, like I said, there's he did not do as good a job as Hamilton when he was behind. That that's the the bottom line. And Bottas, uh, in fact, I asked Toto Wolff about this. Were you disappointed with this? And he talked about the fact Bottas does struggle more when he's in turbulent air than Hamilton does. You know, Hamilton's a great improviser, um, and he's very good at reacting to what the car's doing and uh, and that kind of thing. Whereas Bottas struggled a little bit more. So I don't think you know what Bottas did was not bad. Remember, in the first stint, he was only just behind the, the top two, so he was quick. He was, and that was at a point while Hamilton was ahead of him. There, he was kind of neutralized, so he was on this alternate strategy so up to that point it was, it was overall it was a good race drive but he he was not able to make Leclerc feel vulnerable and if you're Charles Leclerc maybe when Bottas initially comes through and you know how quick he is you might be a little bit worried but I think if you're leading a Grand Prix under pressure and in the same car you've got Lewis Hamilton behind you or Valtteri Bottas if it's Valtteri Bottas with the greatest will in the world you are a lot happier with life aren't you? I think you're being generous Scott I think the thing with uh, the Leclerc-Hamilton battle is they were effectively fighting the same fight. Whereas Bottas had seven laps fresher tyres, was coming at him at a, at a pace. You know, there were some laps where he was the best part of a second quicker than them. And in that situation, if you're the one with the momentum, you need to carry it on through and, and get into that attack mode and force that arrow. I mean, you know, uh, Leclerc's tyres were, were were pretty hard done by that point in time. And so there wouldn't have been a lot left for him. But he didn't carry that momentum in. The one chance he had, he you know, he, he overshot into that chicane and, and took the pressure off. And, and that's the difference. And I think it was a, it was an absolutely adequate drive for the number two and, and kept the pressure on and was good enough. But did you think he was going to win that race when he came up there? I certainly didn't. And I don't think many other people did. And as Ed said, when he looked in the mirrors, it wasn't something that he feared. So I think it's a shame. And I think you saw it when they, they cut to the to Toto in the, in the, on the pit wall and his head just sank. And, and that said it all, really. Um, I think Bottas should have won that race. It, w- it wasn't the results the fans wanted. It wasn't the result the Formula One needed for the narrative. But I think if you actually, you know, you you, you do the uh, simulate it back uh, tonight as they will do on the supercomputers, Bottas should have won that race. I think you should at least have made it harder for Leclerc, shall we say. I mean, I'm not going to hold it against him, not getting past, but as you say, the tyre offset was the thing that made it different to, to Hamilton's situation. So, yeah, I mean, that's what Bottas is ultimately there to do, isn't he? He is the uh, the, the support act. Uh, Hamilton, we should say, of course, he got the fastest lap inevitably, uh, as whichever the front runners has a free pit stop always tends to do. I'm not a big fan of the fastest lap point, as we have discussed uh, discussed before. We should have a little bit of a look elsewhere. Now, Fourth and fifth, we had Danny Ricciardo and Nika Hulkenberg. It's comfortably their best result of the year. Comfortably the best performance gap to the front 
of the year, running a very sort of skinny car in terms of the uh, the aero levels. Good for Renault that they could actually, on a weekend where the car was strong, run it well and come out with the best possible results. So from that perspective, it's very, very good that, that Renault have, have actually executed the weekend well. Although, while they've taken 21 points out of McLaren in the battle for fourth and the constructors and 22 points out of Toro Rosso, who are also ahead of them, I don't think there's reasons to get that excited about Renault just yet because this was track specific here in Spa they were both strong but this does not this covers up the weaknesses shall we say of that car quite amusing to be talking about a Renault powered car and saying how much they're better suited to the high high speed power sensitive tracks isn't it normally normally we're looking at uh, over the years at uh, Red Bull as being that Renault benchmark and just oh, oh Belgium and Italy are coming up well you know just bite your tongue and get through it as best you can uh, but they were they were very very fast here and one of those rare occasions where they executed it. It was a bit like Canada, wasn't it? But this was their, I believe, their biggest points haul since they returned to Formula One as a work Must team. Have been. Must have been, yeah. It's very, very impressive. Um, obviously, fourth, fourth is the best result. Yeah, so it's very, it is impressive. And if you if you just use your magic Forex-powered window there, Ed, to just have a look at the Constructors' Championships for me, because I'm not as intelligent. I, I, don't, I don't need to use it. I've got the uh, my big folder of What's data. What's that? Is that... You've got it's his paper, is that, but it's very good. What's that like? Is that physical internet? Well, something like that. Well, I do a lot of I do a lot of looking at data and that kind of thing after the race. And while I do like doing it in spreadsheets, sometimes I like to have uh, things I can refer to. So yeah, constructors championship. Uh, yeah, we've got McLaren eighty three points in fourth, Renault sixty five points in fifth, and then Toro Rosso have been punted down to sixth on fifty one points. So uh, yeah, that's a that's a big gain for. Uh, for Renault and yeah by some margin their biggest points haul of the year it's very impressive for them to actually do something like that it was a bit like when we saw was it Haas in Austria last year when they had that really big point it might have been the same actually it might have been another a fourth and a fifth um, for, for the Haas drivers in 2018 um, but it's just one of those weekends where if you've actually got an advantage in that midfield battle you've really got to nail it and this has been such a dismal season for Renault in many different ways to actually go out there and do that it would have been it would have done Hulkenberg a world of good as well after losing his Renault seat for, for next season he's just basically proven why Haas should be bending over backwards to get him in their car for, for 2020 but just yeah really good Ricardo I thought um, thought, thought, thought was excellent um, he, he fought back early on didn't he because Hulkenberg as you say had a mega first lap well Hulkenberg was ahead of Ricardo. yeah he got ahead of Ricardo and, and Vettel so Hulk was mega at the start, but then Ricardo came back, and then they were just never troubled in that battle, were they? It was the perfect possible race you can have as the the Class B leader, and it would probably have put a smile on Cyril Abitable's face at the end of the race to see Hulkenberg hold off Alex Albon in the, mm. the Honda powered Red Bull. Yeah, very, very much so. Uh, and this, you know, this is this is a result Renault needed to actually show they could bank the points and kind of get themselves back into that. Uh, into that fight with uh, McLaren credibly. And uh, yeah, Ricardo was the, in fact, you probably say Ricardo's was one of the best performances over the weekend because he was comfortably faster than, than Hulkenberg and just executed everything, uh, everything immaculately. The other thing that's helped them in that battle is McLaren shot themselves in the foot because uh, should have been a nice haul of points, I'd imagine, for, for Carlos Sainz until he headed back down the, the pit lane exit with, um, well, he had four wheels on his wagon, but one of them was uh, not correctly tightened, was it, Ed? Yeah, the front right wasn't on correctly. McLaren 
haven't actually got yet got exactly what the problem was there. Obviously, it was a gunning problem of some sort. Uh, but yeah, they uh, and in fact they were quite slow noticing it because it was something to notice it. He couldn't fail to, so uh, that's why they got a bit of a fine because they weren't that quick at uh, at spotting it. Even though obviously Carlos stopped quickly, but it's a difficult weekend for them because Lando Norris had a, a back of the grid penalty for uh, for an uh, the, taking the the latest uh, Renault engine and of course the back of the grid penalty meant in his case that he uh, he started down in 16th place because uh, there were quite a few people with various versions of back of the grid penalties but yeah that it, it was a it was a bad weekend for McLaren in, in that regard McLaren I think once we get to Singapore will be back quicker again probably they're not oh, they're not that confident about how strong their car is in slow corners but generally they've been quite good you know Monaco they were good Hungary they were good so I think they'll be in good shape to well, I think that's I think that's a test for Renault is when they've got to go to to Singapore and, and deliver a result. It's all very well doing it here, um, but it, you know you've got to bank the points where you can get them. I, I would expect uh, McLaren and, and the rest of that midfield to uh, turn the tables on them uh, in those couple of races. And uh, Alex Albon, obviously, this was his first just normal weekend with Red Bull, and he had a back of the grid penalty last time. So we sort of got to see him qualify, although he didn't actually set a time in in Q three. It was a little bit of a shame that he was struggling a bit in the battle with the Renaults because if you look at his sector times on the one lap that he did attempt in Q3 that he hit the red flag at the end of it, it was very, very close with Ricardo for whether he could put the Red Bull where it should have been, which was a, a, just ahead of the uh, the Renault of, of, of Ricardo. I think they were at the sec- end of the second sector, they were within hundredths. So it'll all come down to the the run through the last sector and, and Parabolica. So uh, that put the Albon in a of a difficult position and then of course he ended up starting because uh, he didn't set he didn't set a time at all in Q3 so he started eighth and then he had that contact with the off battling with Carlos Sainz where Albon ended up sort of being booted through the the Lesmo one gravel what do you make of that I thought that was a little bit too much roughhousing I think Sainz should have given him a bit more room there that could have ended up in an enormous accident um and luckily it didn't and he just sort of kept his foot in and rejoined he lose three or four places um I'm really interested to see what Albon does in these next couple of races. You, 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 you never really expect a great deal from Red Bull here. No Honda have made big strides or whatever, but their whole aerodynamic philosophy doesn't really lend itself particularly well to these tracks. Um, they'll be hoping that they'll be able to get a double podium, I would imagine, in Singapore. This is going to be a really big opportunity for him uh, to stake his claim for that drive. I mean, I know the team's been very impressed with what they've seen so far, and, and rightly so. He's, he's probably, probably delivered uh, as much as they could have hoped for. His sixth is a, is a decent haul of points for him, but these Spa and uh, Mons aren't the right tracks to judge him on. I'm, I'm really looking forward to see what he does at Singapore. Yeah, and we'll also be able to see him in a direct comparison, hopefully, with Max Verstappen, because neither of them should, all things being equal, have penalties come Singapore. Uh, in terms of the minor points places, obviously we saw um, Sergio Perez came through to, to take seventh place. He had an engine failure in qualifying, so he was coming through from uh, from down at the back of the grid. He was, in fact, uh, 18th on the grid. So, uh, yeah, a decent, drive from, uh, a decent drive from him, a bit of opportunism in there. I think... Uh, he was one of the ones that benefited from the virtual safety car timing without double checking uh, my notes. But yeah, considered the bad luck he'd had with the engine failure, that was that was strong from him. And obviously, he was holding off Max Verstappen in the closing stages. Now Verstappen, another with a back of the grid penalty, thanks to taking the uh, the spec four Honda engine. Scott, now he for the second race in a row had a first corner problem. And unlike the first corner problem that he really initiated in Belgium, 
this time he was involved, despite being about as cautious as I've ever seen Max Verstappen take a start of a Grand Prix. He was very much measured on the outside. Could see it all bunching up in front of him, so back right off. You could have you could have parked one of the uh, the team lorries in the gap that he left uh, to the car in front. But then it's almost like just as they get to the to the to the turn in phase of the corner, and he's still on the outside. It's almost like just there's the split second where he doesn't he doesn't quite see in time that everyone's basically bunching up. So he only notices when the car in front of him basically comes to a halt. He jumps on the brakes, tries to avoid it, but catches his front wing. Um, and slides off. Is very lucky actually not to sort of spear off into the into the barrier. It could have been could have been race ending or or, or much worse uh, than than it actually turned out to be. So yeah, limped back to the. Well, I say limped back to the pits. He was actually on the still on the back of everybody as they came through Parabolica. So even with a broken rear wing, that uh, uh, but even with a broken front wing, that uh, Red Bull is still quicker than a Williams and has more aerodynamic performance than a Williams and co. So, but he came into the pits, changed the front wing, switches a soft, then takes advantage, I think, of the first VSC, wasn't it, to get back on sync with everybody else and put the mediums back on. Um, and a solid run to the end, but just didn't quite have the pace. That racing point so slippery in a straight line. So not getting in front of Perez isn't the end of the world. But I think because stats are key, data is everything, the whole world is data. So we can say emphatically, Max Verstappen is totally spooked by having Alex Albon as his teammate. So I believe that <laughs> Albon has, spook- has outscored him 18-4 so far in their two races together. It's a huge and embarrassing defeat by Verstappen. <laughs> what a stunning start to Albon's Red Bull well, there career. We go. That's, that's definitely a positive spin. I, I would suggest, Scott, that after this podcast, you look up the phrase sample size and uh, see what you make of uh, that. Uh, before we move on, I, th- I think um, it, what was really unfortunate with the, with the Vettel thing is that Stroll was doing a really solid job. He'd done a, a great qualifying yeah. and he would have been right up there taking advantage of that force. India. He doesn't get a lot of love. The, you know, the keyboard warriors on the internet are always willing to to lay into him but he was on line for a really decent point he's a monster specialist he's always yeah, very he was, good he was here. looking good all weekend so uh, really unfortunate for him although well, he, he I still was... don't understand why he didn't get the same penalty as Vettel but well enough. I can tell you the reason for it whether you approve of it uh, we should say I mean Stroll was running seventh his first time in Q3 since Monza last year in fact, when they really when he really aced the slipstream the toe in the uh, rather recalcitrant Williams so obviously Stroll spun after the, the after the contact with Vettel when he was recovering. That left him facing vaguely the wrong way at the exit of Ascari and then he booted it round. Gasly coming round Ascari then had to go into the uh, the gravel trap. Now Perez got the the kind of next penalty down in terms of severity, which was a, a stop go. So you come in you uh, no it was a drive through penalty, sorry. Vettel got a stop go, you stop for ten seconds. A drive through, you just gotta roll through the speed control zone in the pit lane and you lose some uh, you lose some time, quite rightly so. Michael Massey, the race director, said the reason was the only re- only difference with the reason was Vettel's was rejoining unsafely and causing a collision. There was no collision in the case of Stroll. Now, whether you think that's an acceptable differentiation just because Gasly happens to have a bit more space to drive into the gravel is is another matter. But uh, it's moving it to, to be fair to Stroll, he wasn't he didn't complain about it, the penalty. He complained about what Vettel did. So I think Stroll, I Stroll was probably just a little bit annoyed by the uh, by the whole thing. And uh, yeah, it's just. Uh, yeah, a shame for him because he he was he was performing uh, very well and certainly yeah he he'd have, he'd have had a a decent haul of points there. We should say Antonio Giovinazzi managed to finish ninth. I say managed to finish ninth as if it's an achievement, but he didn't manage to finish ninth last week after crashing pointlessly right near the end of the race. 
was actually quite a good weekend from Giovinazzi because Raikkonen seemed to be chucking the alpha off at every opportunity, including completely needlessly on his old tyre run in, in Q3 when he uh, he looped it and backed it into the barrier at uh, a Parabolica. But Giovinazzi did well. He was a bit unfortunate in qualifying, could have made Q3, lost a tiny bit of time just past, I think it was Kvyat going into the Parabolica, compromised him slightly so he ran a bit wide. He was only he only missed out on Q3 by 2,000th. I, I think it was his best um, showing in Formula 1 since that time when he made his random debut. Who was injured that he stood it in It was for? Pascal Verlein, who yeah. had the race of champions That's right, injury the race he of carried. Because yeah. he did a good job then when he was thrown in at the deep end. And this yeah, is the yeah. first first time since where he's actually convinced me that he is, you know, a, 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 up to the level of being a regular Formula 1 driver. So obviously he needs a few more of those if he's going to keep his seat. Yeah, we talked about this on the last podcast, well, on the Belgian Grand Prix podcast. He's, he's got good pace. He does sometimes, well... On a semi-regular basis, he looked quicker than Raikkonen, but he hasn't strong weekends together. Belgium looked like it could be a kind of a real problem in terms of whether they want to keep him. This is a nice stabilising effect. So, yeah, positive for him. Obviously, he finished ahead of Lando Norris, who came through to to 10th. But Giovinazzi is the guy who's really, he's fighting to to keep that uh, that Ferrari blessed seat. So, uh, yeah, well, as I said, we talked about that seven uh, seven days ago. But, yeah. Good performance. Raikkonen obviously was uh, an, an odd case because he had those. Well, he had a he crashed on Friday. He crashed on Saturday. He had a trip through the Lesmo gravel in Q two. The team then started him on the wrong set of tires because the reason, as far as I understand it, what happened was they started from the pit lane because they they made some changes, but. Because it wasn't a, because you can change you can start with a completely fresh rubber if it's a chassis change or something, but not if it's not. So I think the team thought they could start on fresh rubber. Actually, they had to start on his Q two rubber. So, well, that yeah, that's it's the team manager's job to uh, to be on top of that. So yeah, that was a, a proper mistake from them. But he was already down the back and didn't really uh, wasn't really able to go anywhere because of that uh, penalty. So an unfortunate weekend for him. And actually, considering Raikkonen's been missed to consistency. There's been nothing like this all season in terms of struggling. I mean, he was reasonably quick, but yeah, seeing Raikkonen crash twice in a Grand Prix weekend, it, I, I can't remember the last time that happened. He's not normally that interesting, is he? Um, well, it's, see, it, it, I'm, jo- he is, I'm joking. No, I've, no, been very, I've been very positive about Kimi, Kimi Raikkonen, Raikkonen this, this year has been brilliantly, boringly effective and done a really good job he's for Alfa. He's been Alpha. very Kimi Raikkonen about it, but in a very good way. He's, he's been excellent for Alfa. He's been everything they needed. This weekend, he wasn't. Now, Ed, I'm sure you agree with me. F1 team press releases aren't always the most illuminating of materials. Some are very good, some are not. Which team are you about to quote from? Right, on this occasion, I'm going to give a shout-out to the quality of the Kimi quotes in the Alfa Romeo press release, because these are stunning. This is genuinely brilliant. Now, what was it I said? What was my... the the four letter word beginning with S that I wanted to use to describe Vettel uh, on 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 uh, on uh, Ascari. Um, we d- we went with spin, didn't we? I meant something else. So I'm going to use spin here in place of the actual oh, word. Kip, so the Kimmy press release quotes. Well, that was a spin weekend. First, my mistake in qualifying, which unfortunately meant we had to change the gearbox. Then we decided to also change the engine and start from the pit lane. We had the wrong tyres on, and with my penalty, my race was more or less over. Looking forward to Singapore, as it can't get worse. That's good, isn't it? I mean, it's a good I'm, summary. <laughs> normally, I have to say that. Normally, I have to say that team is comfortably on the top of the list for most useless press releases during a race weekend. So uh, good, good for them for actually producing something useful uh, for a change. Um, so yeah. Uh, 
unfortunate for uh, for Kimmy. We'll, we'll let him have a bad weekend though, because he hasn't had. Uh, well, that's the only one that really this season that he's had. So, yeah, that, that's kind of covered most of the stories in the race. Obviously, Vettel came back through to thirteenth. Uh, which yeah, obviously wasn't uh, just just capped a, a bad weekend uh, for him. The Hasses, as usual, were running all well. Magnussen was running all right at times, but he eventually retired with a hydraulic problem. So bad weekend for Hass, and then the Williams is uh, at the back as always. Kubica was briefly ahead of Russell, but then got uh, got past, and Russell ended up uh, finishing fourteenth. But one driver we should mention is Daniel Kvyat actually, because he had a really quietly strong race and he was when he had a an oil leak apparently i mean exactly what the nature of the oil leak was sometimes people uh, sometimes teams do refer to oil leaks when there's a hole in the engine because oh, well, that's classic alfa romeo in the 80s yeah, wasn't it yeah because the, the oil does does leak in uh but uh, it did sound like the engine was uh was running when he stopped well, he, he ran an alternative tire strategy didn't he he, he went the other way to, yeah, yeah. to most people but he was, was uh, running he was in six. the top six yeah he was six yeah hulkenberger just stopped so yeah Kvyat's last few weekends have been very strong. Actually, he's been uh, he's reacted well to to his teammate getting the the Red Bull promotion. So yeah, good on Danny Kvyat. But we should before we go talk about the farce in Q3. Now I'm sure everybody's seen it. It's best summarised as nine cars went out quite late at the start of uh, the final runs in Q3. There was adequate time for them to complete the lap. However. It developed into a, a bit of a slow bicycle race, followed by a, a mad panic. And in the end, well, only two drivers actually were able to start their lap. Science did start his lap in time. Leclerc, it turned out, did just start his lap in time. Uh, one ten thousandth of a second. It was some something. ridiculous yeah. amount, but uh, he, he wanted to finish the lap. But um, Ferrari told on the radio, no, you didn't get the checker flag, so uh, so stop. But the other seven didn't make it. Now, it all starts obviously with Hulkenberg cut the chicane and then you had Stroll lifting off so that he didn't pass Hulkenberg when Hulkenberg was trying to let everyone pass. And then you had Sainz went past him and you had Sainz and Hulkenberg as a rolling roadblock through Kerber Grande and Sainz, Hulkenberg and Stroll all got reprimands for their for their part. And you had Hamilton accusing Ferrari of uh, of sort of holding everyone back so they, they could regain pole. Actually, that wasn't really what happened. But just a mess, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a complete mess. And I mean, far, fast, mess. fast is the right word. Although, obviously, it caught a lot of people by surprise in the F1 paddock. But uh, I've been at a Formula E race earlier, and because of their qualifying system out there, the people in Group 1 have to go out on a, on a dirty track. And all by one of them had mistimed it. So they came across a line and ran, you know. You think, it can't be that vital that you can't give yourself like a 10 or 20 seconds, or even 30 second buff buffer but obviously the, the strength of the toe here was such that they wanted to do it but i think i mean a it'll all be forgotten in the fullness of time and it's a bit of a joke really but from the highest level form of motorsport in the world i think we're all entitled to have expect slightly higher standards to be adhered to and that you should just be able to go and set a lap time in the final bit of qualifying. But we'd already seen it before in the Formula 3 race where the uh, the, the race uh, director had stopped qualifying because they were all doing exactly the same thing. A, a decision I thoroughly endorsed. Well, oh, was, it was brilliant. Everyone was on the run to Parabolica. A lot of people going slowly. Some people were trying to finish. It was it was absolute madness. And do you know what? It was, it was, the, it was the first time I've seen a red flag thrown for... For I would say no, no. Well, I would say no reason in terms of normally a red flag is for track conditions. Something stop this, that, and the other. But this was just a red flag for. Do you know what? Collectively, bunch of idiots. Stop it. 
what I would point out is with a couple of differences between the two, because I saw there were a few people making, I guess, a, a natural but slightly too easy comparison and saying, well, why did they do this in the F3 race? But then when it came to F1, they didn't act. The difference there is obviously you've got 30 cars on track, 24 of which are on the straight between Ascari and Parabolica, and you've got people finishing their laps and you've got literally that entire straight peppered with it. So it is genuinely unsafe. It did get... It did get dangerous in the F1 qualifying session. I got into a bit of a debate with um, with uh, our esteemed uh, Formula One colleague and uh, principled aggravator Jack Nichols about this, um, where we were basically discussing whether the the cars in front, people like Hamilton, who were complaining about, oh, I wanted to get on with it, but everyone was blocking me, and it's sort of like, well, if you really feel that way, go out a little bit earlier. But as I pointed out, I did look at, I, I was following Hamilton's onboard for that. And I took a screenshot of it when I looked at it back on uh, this morning. I sent it to Jack. And I think this proves my point. I don't really think you can blame Hamilton here for not getting on with it. I've got a little, a brilliant screenshot here of Hamilton looking at the entry for Curva Grande. Yeah, it's and he's got And he's got two Ferraris in front of him that are sort of staggered on the inside. And I think that's signs and uh, Hulk. That, that's the signs that and Hulk staggered on the, on the left. Yeah. And it's just, it's insane. You can't do anything about that. But it goes... He left the pits 30 seconds earlier. It goes back to that point of building in the correct margin. Here that they all basically faffed around so much finding for the toe. So Ed Straw, the obvious solution to this is... Well, the, the solution is suggested, and this actually would be elegant as a one-off, given the strength of the toe, which has increased, actually, this year's uh, regulation changes have increased the drag of the cars, and actually the 17 reg changes as well did the same thing. So the toe at Monza has become more powerful over the past few years. So you could do one-shot qualifying as a one-off. I'd only say it for Monza. Robert Kubitzer actually said, I asked, we were talking to him about it on Saturday, and he said, actually, in the driver's briefing, I was thinking about one st- one shot qualifying for that because it would stop it you can then basically you know it's like at indy they have the no toe speeds don't they indianapolis so it would be no toe qualifying and it's it's an interesting idea i don't necessarily have a problem with uh with a one-off special qualifying formats i'm just like to emphasize i'm not advocating one shot qualifying every race because it did not go it did not go well um so yeah that's a way to stop it i mean i was surprised that there weren't a few penalties. I would have penalised Hulkenberg and Sainz for their rolling roadblock act. They investigated Hulkenberg for deliberately going off track, but couldn't prove he had done it deliberately, even though I, I understand why they couldn't conclusively prove it, but he definitely, I'm sure he did it deliberately. Stroll got, could have been penalised because there was a bit of a moment where he was being hesitant and blocking the track, but those two were the principal offenders. Ferrari were messing about a little bit because in the general melee there, Vettel had gone past Leclerc. And then the team's saying to Vettel, right, you haven't got any time. And he's like, well, tell Leclerc to go past me, which eventually happened. And it was just a mess. Incidentally, there was a trace of uh, the team being a bit annoyed with Leclerc there for, for hesitating. I'm sure Leclerc was not too unhappy if a situation arose where Vettel was ahead of him. I, I don't think that would have... I, I don't think he tried too hard to prevent it. He did eventually go in the end, but there was clearly a little bit of aggro in the team for... Uh, for that, which Leclerc atoned for with his uh, with his win, but yeah, it was just stupid. Personally, I thought it was hilarious. It got a big round of applause in the media centre as a one-off amusing spectacle. I feel a little bit sorry for the spectators who didn't get to see uh, see it quite fine, but it's memorable, isn't it? And it's a great it's a great talking point. So um, as a one-off, <laughs> it's uh, it's just you know, comedy, wasn't it? Ultimately, it, it was just comedy, and it it was just um, yeah, 
well done, well done, everyone. And yeah, it was always going to happen one day, something uh, ridiculous uh, like that. You know, they can do things about mandating how quickly you do the laps when you go out, etc. I'd favour, I'd favour anything that has the least rules is normally a good thing. And one shot could be interesting as a one-off. I don't necessarily object to it, although my first choice would everyone be sensible. We, surely next year, Merck or someone will factor this in and they'll send their two drivers out before the others, even if it's only by 15 seconds or whatever, just to mitigate against that. that I can't imagine this will happen again. And like you say, it was, it's just... A, well, the trouble is because they all want a free... Someone wants a free toe at the front, don't they? That's the thing. And uh, that was one of the reasons why Leclerc didn't want to go past Vettel at one stage, because he wanted to let Science pass, to let Science go. Ford Science was the one who eventually realised, I've just got to get on with this and go first and be done with it. Um, yeah, so uh, generally a, a hilarious uh, a hilarious moment. But yeah, as we said, a, a great Grand Prix weekend. That was just one of the many, uh, many stories from it. So uh, yeah, Formula One's been fantastic um, for well, the exception um, of the French Grand Prix. Yeah, well, absolutely. I was just going to say, while we mentioned Formula 3, it probably is worth mentioning um, that incredible crash uh, that happened uh, in the Formula 3 race to uh, Alex Peroni. I don't know if I hope... Uh, people have probably seen it because it, it went completely viral. Where he'd run wide and uh, and hit a curb. I don't. I've... If you haven't seen it, it's best described as the biggest overreaction to hitting a curb you've ever seen. Uh, unbelievable! I mean, the car is launched into a two and a half t- twist pike, you know, uh, and it lands halo first in the barrier. And obviously, you know, following the tragic circumstances of the previous weekend, the the, the collective breath being held around and then ridiculously seemingly like a minute later he was there being uh taken walking his own way into the into the medical car and luckily the marshals in the in the area had all uh were uninjured as well but it was just a, a phenomenal sight and i think goes to show how we can never be complacent about these things and all of that um track furniture or whatever needs to be properly examined for the law of unintended consequences you know when i saw you know the the usual well I'll bring back gravel traps and blah 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 but you know maybe just bring back driving in between the white lines i don't know well i also quite like the initial reaction which was bring back there not being a curb there which they because they did hastily unbolt it and remove it before uh formula one uh got going uh again so yeah uh, uh a serious accident ultimately and he uh, although he it could have been much much worse he did get i think it was a, a broken vertebra and a concussion wasn't it so yeah so not um yeah so, so it had an impact yeah and and, and i know that that it, it gained a lot of attention because of the sausage curb and there were lots of drivers from different categories and and people in the f1 paddock as well criticizing the the sausage curb what was it doing there etc but uh, it's a it's an it's an fia it's an fia solution they like it because most of the time you don't have anything like this some drivers say that this was just something waiting to happen it was an inevitability i would counter and say that i'm not i'm not defending the fia's judgment on that but if you get if you're going to criticize the fia for doing something getting something wrong got to praise them for doing something right because another one wasn't it for the for the halo so it's sort of i i that just because they've got that right doesn't mean that they can get things so wrong that you can have an accident like that but I do often find it difficult when you had so much vocal criticism of, of, of the halo and this is got to be the fourth or fifth time now I've seen an accident or seen something where I think, blimey, this could have been well, if a, a, few a lot them, worse. Tadasuki Makino last year, Charles Leclerc at Spa last year to, to name but two. There was quite a lot of damage to, was it Sean Goliath's halo in the, the F2 race last weekend? Obviously, they, obviously, um, 
there's much bigger things uh, to, to focus on after after Antoine Hubert's fatal crash, but there was quite significant markings on Galile's uh, halo, which looked like it I think it had been struck by debris. Of, uh, I don't know if it was like a front wing or something, but that was in a position where had the halo not been there, that could have been quite a nasty helmet strike as well. So I'm not, as again, I, I, I can't reiterate this enough. I'm not saying that that justifies the FI putting a sausage curb that ramped a car well, in the, the air into a computer game style barrel roll, because that could have been horrifically bad just because the halo potentially saved the driver doesn't mean that it didn't put the marshal's life at risks at risk because of, of of the way it landed on the catch fencing and then came down the other side i just think you have to look at stuff with perspective and say if yes the way the fia goes about its decision making tests and sort of balance of probability okay in that situation sausage curb was wrong most of the time the sausage curb doesn't do that so on the balance is it right because nothing's ever 100 percent perfect but the halo again has proven to be 100 percent correct in in being brought into f1 and all of the new fia mandated single seed series below f1 as well that have had a new car since the halo came in well just to sort of tie that up obviously the sausage curb was hit longitudinally it was not designed to be hit at that sort of angle or was not thought about the possibility of being set at that angle so so it's kind of outside of the the, the kind of parameters so i'm sure they'll uh, they'll have a good look at that uh well that's been a good conversation about a pretty dramatic race we could have gone on for a few hours but it's getting it's getting quite late coming up to midnight so uh, we shall have to leave it there do check out autosport.com loads of feedback and reaction and fallout from uh, from the Italian Grand Prix weekend there and of course the whole rest of the world of motorsports covered there Autosport Mag will be out on Thursday check out motorsport.com F1 Racing Magazine out monthly motorsport news out every Wednesday as well Autosport Podcast out every Monday and Thursday if you're not already a subscriber please do subscribe to us uh, and also check out some of our other podcasts uh, uh flat chat with codders the the f1 racing podcast and uh, the tank slappers with lewis and uri the uh the, the new bike racing podcast we've recently launched thanks for joining us we'll be back soon with another auto sport podcast Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Redeemed a fifty thousand dollar cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun with over eighty casino style games to choose from. You too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.